Number six of The Heart of a Mystery by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Number six, The Lost Square, Part One. Just about this time, I lost a considerable sum of money, and from being a man with abundant means, I became a comparatively poor one. This misfortune was doubtless a blessing in disguise for it aroused me from concentrating all my thoughts on my own miserable condition. In the future I must work hard to live, and must no longer play with work. My post as secretary to Sir James Knoll was no longer, for many reasons, to my taste. I liked Sir James, but both he and I agreed that he would do better with a secretary who was less hampered, in short, a total stranger, who knew nothing about either Mademoiselle or Signor Pinheiro would be more to his purpose. I accordingly left him and took lodgings in an unfashionable part of Kensington. Pinheiro returned to Lisbon to his work there, and Mademoiselle was, to all appearance, lost to us both. We concluded that she must, in some marvelous way, have contrived to escape from England, and I sincerely hoped that I should never be troubled by her again. Hard and honest and unceasing work brought back my lost nerve. I was no longer harrowed by the terror of secret assassination. As a poor man, I was delightfully unimportant, and I turned all my attention and all my thoughts to the one thing for which I had a special talent. We most of us possess one ability to a sufficient degree to make a living by means of it if necessary, and my talent was an extraordinary one. I could, from my very earliest years, solve almost any acrostic or enigma that was put before me. Even as a child, I remember giving the solutions to all the acrostics which appeared in the magazines, and also making quite a nice income by securing the prizes which were offered for the right answers. Six months, therefore, after I had lost my money and resigned my post as Sir James Knoll's secretary, I became one of the constructors of codes and ciphers for the government, and also received employment from several large commercial firms. I was busy and well paid. My life was practically a new one. I resolved to live it with enthusiasm and contentment, and, if possible, to forget the past. But, alas, the past in cases like mine is seldom really forgotten, and seldom safely buried. I was once again to be subjected to the cruel machinations of a deadly foe. On a certain evening in January, I was just finishing my early tea, when a servant entered the room to say that a foreign gentleman had called and wished to see me at once. Wondering who my visitor was, I told the man to show him in, and rose from the tea-table to receive him. The next moment there entered a short but well-built man of swarthy complexion. He made a low bow when he saw me and held his silk hat in his hand. "'I must ask your pardon, Signor Venace, for calling upon you at this hour.' but my business happens to be of great importance. I bring you a letter from Signor José da Fondeca Pinquero. He asked me to call upon you as soon as ever I got to town. The man spoke perfect English, but with a marked foreign pronunciation, and with a curious movement of the lips. Indeed, I answered with eagerness, I shall always be pleased to welcome any friend of Pinheiro's. Have you the letter with you? Yes, Signor, here it is. He handed me a letter written in the well-known characters of my friend. It ran as follows. My dear Finesse, the bearer, Signor da Costa, a native of Lisbon and a friend of mine, 
has just been to see me in connection with a document and diagram which he believes to be of great value. I have translated the old Portuguese for him, and it refers to the diagram. Both document and diagram are of undoubted antiquity, and seem to be a sort of old cipher or puzzle. I know nothing about such matters, and it occurred to me that, as this is very much in your line, I would send him to you. Even if you cannot do anything with the diagram, you will be entitled to charge a fee for your trouble. In the old Portuguese writing occur the words Casa dos Diamantes, which literally means the House of Diamonds. Da Costa has told me, however, that the expression has nothing to do with diamonds, for the stonemasons in Portugal call a stone cut into a four-sided pyramid diamante. I find on inquiry that this is the case. If you can do anything to help Da Costa, you will oblige me. Trust in you are well, my dear Finesse. Believe me, yours sincerely, José da Fandeca Pinheiro. I shall be willing to do all in my power to help you, Señor da Costa, I said, but I fear the foreign cipher will be outside my range of observation. I sincerely hope not, Señor. Señor Pinheiro asked me to come to you, as the best man for the purpose, in the whole of London. Let me see your diagram, was my answer to this. I have not got it with me, he replied, and before I subject it to your examination, I must ask you to swear that if you succeed in deciphering it, you will not divulge the solution to a single soul. I believe it to be of extreme importance, and it is only because I cannot solve it myself that I am bound to run the risk of entrusting it to the confidence of a stranger. Your secret shall be respected by me, I answered, provided, of course, that it is a harmless one. It is absolutely harmless, Mr. Finesse. Where am I to see the cipher? In my rooms. I have apartments in a house in Bloomsbury. Can you come now? Certainly. Come along, then. My cab is at the door. We shall be there in less than half an hour. He spoke little as we drove along, and presently the cab stopped at one of the large old houses in a street leading out of Bloomsbury Square. Senor da Costa paid the driver and opened the door with a latch key. He ushered me into a dimly lit and dingy hall, the floor of which was bare of mat or carpet. The staircase was also bare, and sloped up in naked ugliness into the darkness above. Our footsteps rang loud on the uncarpeted stairs. When we reached the first floor, Da Costa threw open the door of a big room. "'Excuse me for a moment, Mr. Finesse,' he said. "'I will fetch the document and join you.' As soon as I was alone, I glanced round the room. It was badly and scantily furnished. A faded carpet covered the floor, and cheap prints hung upon the walls. The only light was from a kerosene lamp, which stood on the table in the middle of the room. This lamp smelt horribly, and added to the sense of depression which stole over me. A thousand unanswered questions floated through my brain. Who was Da Costa, and what was this mysterious cipher? What was this mystery of mysteries which I was asked to unravel? Had it not been for Pinheiro's letter, I should have had nothing whatever to do with the Portuguese. But Pinheiro had said that he was a friend of his, and had asked me to help him. I had no doubt for a moment of the genuineness of the letter which had been handed to me as coming from my friend. The handwriting was the same, the heading to the paper, that which I so well remembered. Yes, I need not be alarmed. Pinheiro was the last man on earth to lead me into a dangerous or unworthy adventure. Da Costa came briskly in, produced an old tin box, and proceeded to open it. From the box he drew a parchment, yellow and stained with age. This he unfolded and carefully smoothed out. 
I bent over it with much curiosity. Upon it, in the form of a square, was some faded manuscript, of which not a single word was legible to me. The writing was enclosed in a number of dots or points. These points were joined by connecting lines, forming small squares. In some cases, however, the lines were missing, giving an irregular appearance to the whole. But whether this was owing to age having erased them, or to the whim of the original designer, it was impossible to say. Now, said da Costa, I will read the translation of the writing by Signor Pinheiro. He assures me that it is quite literal and true. Listen. He read aloud in a sonorous voice. They say that I am mad, that my wealth has made me mad. I am prevented thus from following the desire of my heart. You, my dearest friend, whom I love, shall receive all. I am dying, yet I fear to write where they are, lest this paper should fall into the hands of strangers and those who hate me. Therefore I show here how you may receive all. You remember our secret studies. You, and you alone, can read this map, so it is thus safe. They lie at the sixty-fifth square of the House of Pyramids. Your beloved friend, pray for my soul. This is very interesting, I said. It sounds like some letter or dying instructions to the person addressed. Oh, it strikes you like that, does it? He answered. Kindly say what you think of the cipher, and if you see any possibility of the solution. I examined it very carefully, and then, asking for a pair of compasses and some paper, I systematically set to work to apply to the diagram every process that I knew relating to such class of enigma, both diagrammatical and mathematical. I covered several sheets of paper with my figures. The Portuguese watched my every movement with almost embarrassing attention. I could arrive at no result, and at the end of an hour I leant back in my chair and had to confess that for the present I was baffled. Am I at liberty to inquire how the document came into your possession? I asked. You are not was his short reply. I mean this, I said hotly, for his manner began to irritate me. You ask me here to solve what is an extremely abstruse conundrum, and which, for all I know, may have no solution. I cannot tell whether you are hiding anything from me that would help me to a solution. It may be necessary for your purpose to do this. If so, and if you cannot give me any further help, I am afraid I shall never succeed in discovering this mysterious sixty-fifth square, for this is evidently the key to the problem. Then you think it is insoluble? I do not say that at all. There are very few ciphers which the ingenuity of man has constructed that the ingenuity of man in time cannot solve, provided, of course, that there is a solution. You have solved a good many in your life, Mr. Frenace, I take it? Yes, I replied. I have, and constructed a good many, too. Suppose you saw the real thing say the surface of the building or the room to which this might apply, would you have a better chance? Very much better. Indeed, I think I might almost guarantee to discover the solution, but I should not like to swear. He sat, biting his fingers, regarding me fixedly for a few minutes. Are you a busy man, Mr. Finace? he asked at last. Yes, I am. Why? I mean, could you get away for about a week now? No, that would be impossible, I said, remembering my work. But if I make it worth your while? I looked at him in astonishment. I am afraid I don't understand you, Signor da Costa, was my answer, and I must confess that the whole of tonight's business is extremely mysterious to me. I don't know if Signor Pinheiro told you that I am a man with a great deal of business to transact. I am employed, not only by several firms, but also by the government, on matters of great importance. 
Were I to throw up my present employment, I should lose a position which it is essential to me to retain. To put it shortly, I should lose my livelihood. Will an absence of a week mean this? he asked. It would be very inconvenient to leave home at present, was my reply. Then may I ask what sum would make it convenient? I did not answer for a moment. I was short of funds, and a debt which, owing to my recent losses, I had been unable to meet, loomed unpleasantly on the horizon. The present opportunity was, therefore, not to be despised. Signor Pinero mentioned that you were the sort of man to give valuable assistance in an emergency like this, said the Portuguese, speaking slowly and with many pauses. He was much interested in this matter. You may help him by coming to our aid. Will you do it? I should require the sum of eight hundred pounds, I said at last. If you will agree to this, and if you will let me have the money down before I leave England, I shall be at your service. A long silence followed my words. My strange companion regarded me fixedly. The cheap or molu clock on the mantelpiece ticked away incessantly. That was the only sound in the room. Suppose I work to consent to give you that sum, Mr. Finesse, he said at last. What guarantee will you give me that you will not at the last moment cry off and desert me? I will give you the word of an English gentleman, I answered, and I only make one reservation. If I find, in what I am about to do, anything underhand or criminal or against the laws of my own country, I return to England at once. He gave a short laugh. Pooh, you Englishmen are all alike, always suspicious. But would you not be content to receive the money at the conclusion of the business? No, I shall require it in the Bank of England notes before I go. Again there was silence. I cannot do that, he said at last, slowly. I have not so much money with me. You must consider my position and the risk I am running. Your solution may, after all, be incorrect, and if correct, it may lead to nothing. Come, I will make you a fair offer. I will hand you three hundred pounds before we start. Where do we go? I asked. To Lisbon. Then I shall see Pinheiro again, I said. You will. Your friend will be waiting to receive you. You see for yourself that you are very largely paid for a matter which is not dangerous to you and does not occupy many days of your time. Very well, I answered. I will go with you. I will be satisfied to receive three hundred pounds in advance and the remaining five hundred pounds on the completion of this business. That is, I added, provided your explanation of this affair is satisfactory to me. Is that also an indispensable condition? he asked. I do not agree without it, I replied. Then I will tell you. Give me your hand and word of honor. I held out my hand. You have already had my word, I said. An Englishman does not repeat himself. Very well, he said. Now, listen. He bent eagerly forward. His swarthy face was flushed, and his eyes glistened. Do you know Lisbon? Yes, I said. He looked startled for a moment, then he said slowly, I forgot. You are a friend of Pinheiro's. Lisbon is that great detective's headquarters. Knowing our city, you will understand the better the description I am about to give you. He bent forward, lowering his voice, and fixing his somewhat prominent black eyes on my face. In Lisbon, said da Costa, there is a certain house. It is the oldest in the city, and it is called da Casa dos Bicos. It was built about 1490 by a very rich and eccentric man. Indeed, 
there is little doubt that he was mad. Now pico, in Portuguese, means a point, and it derives its name from the fact that the front is bristling with quadrangular pyramids of stone, each terminating in a point. Upon each point, and there are over seven hundred, this man intended to set a diamond. But the work was stopped by the government, as there would then have been a richer house in Lisbon than the royal palace. Lisbon was at that time a great commercial emporium, full of wealthy merchants, living in great luxury, excess, and extravagance. The man in question was one of these. The house had withstood no less than six great earthquakes. The great one of 1531, which lasted for fifty days, four more earthquakes in that terrible century, and finally the greatest of all in 1755, which destroyed half the city. The strange story of the diamond craze had been little credited, and was indeed almost forgotten, when this document was discovered by Senora Lelo Mendez, the present owner and the direct descendant of the builder of the house. It is on her behalf I am now employed. There are documents and receipts proving conclusively that this man had in the house over seven hundred Brazilian diamonds of the finest water, and when he died their whereabouts could never be traced. I believe this paper to be the key. With your aid we might read the cipher contained therein, and if so, if, his voice trembled audibly, that Senora Lela Mendez will be the richest woman in Europe, and I know her well, she will not forget us. I gave a gasp as he ceased speaking. Your story astonishes me, Senor da Costa, I said. Supposing the diamonds are found, what do you reckon their value will be? He shrugged his shoulders. Anything you like. I don't suppose less than half a million sterling. And where is this lady now? In Lisbon. Does Signor Pinheiro know her? Very well indeed. In fact, he is working in this matter in her behalf. Really? I had a passing moment of wonder that my friend had not written straight to me through the post. Da Costa seemed to read my thoughts. I saw Pinheiro just before I started, he said. I traveled day and night. The mail could not come quicker. When he spoke of you, I recognized at once that you were the very man for our purpose, raised up, so to speak, by providence. What Pinheiro suggests, we, his followers, always act upon. Oh, he is a great man, sir, a wonderful man, the greatest detective of his time. I sank back in my chair. My heart was beating fast. I had in very truth recovered my nerve and was in the mood for adventures. I needed money, and here was a way of getting it. I longed to see my friend again. That wish could also be gratified. In a moment I rose from my seat and told the Portuguese that, provided he would hand me a check for three hundred pounds, I should be ready to start on my journey at eleven o'clock on the following morning. He jumped up in extraordinary excitement, produced a checkbook, filled in a check for the required amount, and handed it to me. I saw that it was payable at the city bank, shook hands with him, and went away. I spent a busy night arranging a hundred details and writing many letters. Finally, as soon as the bank was opened, I took my check there and received in exchange six crisp Bank of England notes for fifty pounds each. I lodged five of the notes to my private account at my own bank and changed the remaining one for gold and five-pound Bank of England notes. At half-past ten, I drove up to the house in Bloomsbury. Da Costa was waiting on the steps to receive me. 
His luggage was already on the roof of a cab. Come, he said, uneasiness in his tone. We have not a moment to lose. We shall just catch the express to Paris. I jumped into the cab, and the Portuguese followed me. The door was slammed, and we were off. The journey itself was uneventful. We left Paris by the Sud Express, and passing through Bordeaux and Villar Famosa on the Portuguese frontier, rumbled into Rocchio Station at Lisbon at 11.30 on Saturday night. Just as we were doing so, I turned to the Portuguese. I shall take a cab, I said, and drive straight to Signor Pinheiro's house. He had been sullen, not to say morose, during our journey. Now he was all alive and evidently full of great excitement. No, my friend, he said, your time is mine. You come with me, straight with me, to business now, now. We meet Pinheiro at the house where your services are required. We waste no time going to his palace in the suburbs. As I had no answer to make to this, and no possible objection to offer, I followed the Portuguese out of the station. He almost pushed me into a pair-horse vehicle, followed himself, and without waiting for any luggage except my small handbag, desired the driver to hurry forward. We immediately dashed off at a great pace, rattling and bumping over the cobblestones. We went down queer, narrow, low-built streets, full of strange sights and sounds. Again, we went up inclines so steep that the windows were right above us, then down slopes on which, had the brakes given way, we must have gone to instant destruction. At last we stopped at a small house in a deserted lane. My companion paid the driver, opened the door with a latch key, and bade me bring my bag inside. We entered a room on the ground floor. The house appeared to be quite deserted and was absolutely quiet. Now, said da Costa, speaking with great eagerness, we must make haste. We have delayed too long already and time is short, very short. There are others after the treasure. They want to rob the rightful owner. Get what you want quickly. I opened my bag, took out my measuring tape, foot rule, and designing case, and announced that I was ready. When we got outside the house, I paused. Did you really say that Pinheiro would meet us at the house to which we are going? I asked. Certainly. He knows of our arrival. He is only too anxious to see you. Come, come. We lose everything by this delay. We started forward at a smart pace. Although I supposed myself to know Lisbon fairly well, I had not the slightest notion in what direction we were going. Twice da Costa halted and glanced behind him, and once, seizing my arm, he drew me into the shadow of a dark archway. There we waited for a few moments, and then resumed our journey. My distrust of the man and of the whole expedition grew at every step, and had he not been very much stronger than I, I should have refused to go on. I determined, however, to keep my reason and all my wits in active play, and I did not allow anything to escape my attention. I observed that we trended our way, for the most part, downhill, till at length, after innumerable turnings and twistings, I saw, lying before me, the broad expanse of the Tagus, dotted with the twinkling lights of the crowded shipping. A few moments more, and we were down on the riverside, threading our way among the wharves, alongside of which were moored innumerable craft, their masts and spars sticking up in fantastic criss-cross designs. Though it was now past midnight, the quay was alive with noise and bustle, and was thronged with foreign sailors, who were loading an outward-bound steamer. Still on we went, past great gaunt factories which shut out half the sky, and tall chimneys that loomed black against the stars. 
now through dark and squalid streets, redolent of foul odors. From the lighted interiors of the wine shops came shouts of coarse laughter and brawling. From the time we started, my companion had not spoken a single word, and when he suddenly halted before the most extraordinary-looking house I had ever seen, and said, Now, Mr. Finace, I started as if a cannon report had gone off in my ear. The house was very low and wedged in between taller ones on either side. The entire front was, as da Costa had described it, bristling with pointed stones set in regular rows. Upon a door under a low archway, da Costa now gave one or two peculiar knocks. It was immediately opened by a man, dressed only in a shirt and trousers, with a queer sort of stocking cap on his head. As soon as we were inside, he closed and bolted the door, and then lit a lantern. A few words of conversation, in very low tones, passed between him and da Costa, of which I was evidently the subject. Meanwhile, I looked around me. We were in a long, low room, with a stone floor covered with mats. The ceiling was supported by thick wooden joists. There was nothing whatever in this room but some barrels, a pair of large weighing scales, and piles of split and dried codfish, which smelt horribly. Motioning me to follow them, the two men went down some steps to a tiny room containing a small table and three wooden chairs. The floor and walls were square stones. Holding up the lantern, da Costa turned to me and said, I had hoped to find Pinguero here, but he has not come. We cannot wait for him. Now, Mr. Fenace, this is the room. Start your work at once. What do you think of it? Here is the cipher. As he spoke, he handed me the parchment. I was on my mettle now and flung the whole of my mental energy into the problem before me. I forgot Pinheiro. I forgot everything but my own work. First I measured the walls. They were exactly eight feet each way. Then I found the area of the floor, but where the sixty-fifth square could be it was impossible to conceive. Was this a mere juggling of words, or had it a latent and very obvious meaning? On my way from London I had been puzzling over it, and somewhere at the back of my brain had been moving an old memory of a sixty-fifth square. But when, where, and how I had heard about it, I had not been able to recall. Now, suddenly, as if in a flash, the possible solution burst upon me. Was it, could it be, based upon the classic conundrum of the lost square? End of Number 6, Part 1